0: Welcome to Evidence Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, which is Evidence Based Radio. And you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website, com. And I actually will have. They should have actually already gone up. There's a couple of posts that refer to things in today's show uh, because they have sort of visual components. So I thought it would be good to have them go up so that you could see them at your leisure. Okay, so let us start with some good news. Curiosity, the rover that is still active and working on Mars, uh, has sent back an amazing 360 degree panorama. That is the first thing that is uh, linked on the first Facebook page. And so it's a really excellent uh, panorama and you can do the whole 360 thing with the uh, video and it's very, very cool. I mean, Obviously a bit monochromatic <laughs> since Mars is basically just kind of shades of uh, sort of tan and burnt umber, uh, but still really fascinating. And you can see a kind of really interestingly uh, distorted because of the sort of fisheye quality of the um, picture, you can see the a lot of the actual uh, rover itself. And you can see that it does have a fair amount of dust on it, but luckily not enough to actually have hurt it. Because for instance, um, sorry, because part of the reason for that is that it's actually on the other side of the planet from Opportunity. And so it wasn't as affected by dust storms. Now, we are still hoping that Opportunity will come back online following those huge sandstorms, but right now, uh, we still haven't heard from it yet, but of course, Curiosity is still busily working away, so even if, unfortunately, Opportunity doesn't come back online, there's still a lot of science to be done on Mars using Curiosity, and so the pictures it's sending back are of Vera Rubin Ridge, and they are exciting researchers. In the foreground of the picture is the most recent drill target called Stor, after a Scottish town near where an ancient lake bed revealed important information about the early life on Earth. Because, of course, one of the things that we're looking for is signs of life that may have once flourished on Mars. The ridge isn't this monolithic thing. It has two distinct sections, each of which has a variety of colors, says Ashwin Vasavada, Curiosity's project scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Some are visible to the eye and even more show up when we look in near-infrared, just beyond what our eyes can see. Some seem related to how hard the rocks are. And this is important because hard rock has been an issue of late for the rover. Two drill attempts were unable to penetrate through patches of surprisingly hard rock. However, the latest drill attempt was successful. Now, Curiosity has actually had to adjust the way it drills due to a mechanical problem. But that actually seems to be working just as well as it did before they had to do the workaround. NASA noted that even if the drill had been working as designed, it wouldn't actually have been able to penetrate these rocks because they were that hard. Much of the ridge contains hematite, a mineral that forms in water. There's such a strong hematite signal that it drew the attention of NASA, of NASA orbiters like a beacon. Could some variation in hematite result in harder rocks? Is there something special in the ridge's red rocks that makes them so unyielding? NASA wrote in a statement, two more drill sites are planned for September in the area. And then in October, the rover will actually begin its ascent up Mount Sharp to the ultimate goal, an area of clay and sulfate minerals where the rover will have a great view of the surrounding area. And so I'm much, very much looking forward to that, uh, to NASA getting another really successful uh, mission um, goal out of Opportunity. And so, yeah, um, or sorry, out of curiosity. And hopefully Opportunity will come back online. And I will definitely uh, post about it if it happens not on a Friday, which it probably won't, uh, and then uh, update you as well on Friday as soon as I hear anything, because I am actually going to be watching that pretty closely because I would really like to hear that it is uh, back up and running. Okay, so in another NASA update, New Horizons is gearing up for its hardest mission yet. On New Year's Day, the probe will pass within 2,200 miles of the Kuiper Belt object 2014 MU69, which the researchers have been calling Ultima Thule. And so Ultima Thule is an approximately 23-mile-wide object orbiting in the deep reaches of the outer solar system. The object is approximately 3.7 billion miles away from Earth. It takes six hours for signals to travel back from the craft, despite the fact that signals are traveling at the speed of light. So uh, as a point of reference, the amount of time it takes sunlight to leave the sun and reach Earth is about six or seven minutes. (laughs) So uh, yeah. And so it's pretty far away at this point. And uh, it's also going to be pretty hard. The team will only have one chance at getting the images and scientific data they want from Ultima Thule as New Horizons zips by it at just over 8.5 miles per second. And there are unknown dangers as well. There could be unknown obstacles out there waiting to dash the team's hopes. Are there debris in the way? Will the spacecraft make it? I mean, you know, you can't get any better than that. And we'll get spectacular images on top of that. What's not to like? Jim Green, director of NASA's Planetary Science Division, said Wednesday during a science chat broadcast from the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab in Maryland. Now, why are we so interested in this relatively small object? Well, NASA researchers believe that it represents a class of objects that are the building blocks of larger Kuiper Belt objects, which in turn are time capsules from the very early formation of the solar system. They are the remains of the dust and debris that collapsed to form both the sun and planets. And in fact, the temperature on the object is projected to be just 40 to 50 degrees above absolute zero because of how far it is away from the sun. It's a big deal because we're going four billion years into the past, Alan Stern, principal investigator of the mission said. Nothing that we've ever explored in the entire history of space exploration has been kept in this kind of deep freeze the way Ultima has. And as mentioned, this is going to be much trickier of a task than Pluto. And so basically, researchers were able to carefully study the trajectory and surrounding area of Pluto for years before the launch. We've known Pluto's out there for a very long time. But Ultima Thule, on the other hand, was only discovered in 2014, as its name suggests. And so the team are actually having to use optical navigation cameras to make appropriate course corrections. The orbit is not very well characterized, said Alice Bowman, the mission operations manager for New Horizons. That's why we're doing optical navigation measurements, continuously looking to make sure we know the point in space we want to target. And of course, making this even more difficult uh, is the fact that Ultima Thule is dark and reddish, which means it only reflects a very small amount of light. It's also in a region of space with a lot of background stars. Uh, So it is definitely going to be a challenge. But as we've seen, NASA has pulled off some pretty amazing things in the last uh, several years. And so for now, it's just a kind of a wait and see game. The approach will begin on December 25th and last through January 3rd. The craft will be closest to the object at 12.33 a.m. on January 1st. Now, just before that, the team will have a last chance to make any course corrections. The first check to let the team know that all has gone well will be around 10 a.m. on January 1st. The first images should arrive between 6 and 8 p.m. on the 1st. So let's hope that the new year brings a new round of success and good science to NASA. I am definitely, definitely hoping that they are going to uh, be able to do this because I know it's been a huge, huge hope um, for this team that's already done so much amazing science, but to be able to cap it off. By doing science on this object that is so incredibly old and so, you know, these Kuiper Belt objects are just completely unstudied, basically, Um, because obviously, they are immensely far away. And uh, so yeah, it is extremely interesting. And I am so looking forward to a good result. And you know, obviously, if there isn't a good result, this is a very tricky situation and no one will be at fault. Um, you know, Any number of things could happen. Uh, we know, for instance, um, when I was talking with Michael a couple of weeks ago about you know things like micrometeors, there could be debris that at eight miles per second, if New Horizons were to hit debris, it could hit something that is extremely important and could damage the spacecraft, and then we wouldn't get the data. But hopefully, all is going to go well. Okay, so let's talk about one of the big headlines that everyone seems to be uh, reporting about today. And let's talk about what it actually means, other than just, uh, you know, the idea that maybe some scientists have too much time on their hands because what they were doing is actually really interesting and important work. So what headline am I talking about? Well, it just happens to uh, involve one of my favorite animals, so that might be a hint. And it is of course the fact that researchers uh, recently published a paper describing how they gave MDMA, uh, better known as ecstasy or molly, uh, to four octopuses. So reporting in the journal Current Biology, Eric Edzinger, a marine biologist at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, and Gul Dolan, a a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, described what happened when they put octopuses into beakers with dissolved ecstasy. So the researchers actually wanted to test whether the drug would have the same effects on these highly intelligent, but usually antisocial creatures as it does on humans. And indeed, it actually did make the octopuses more (laughs) touchy-feely. And so basically they gave them the drug and then they put them in an apparatus that allowed them the freedom to be able to touch another subject uh, and so when they weren't, uh, when they hadn't been exposed to MDMA, they pretty much are very solitary and, you know, um, especially males and males didn't really want to have anything to do with each other. But when you give them the drug, then they become much more interested in actually uh, exploring one another and kind of trying to figure out uh, what is going on with that other Individual rather than just avoiding them outright. And so this suggests that despite the differences in their brain structure, they may have more in common with humans than previously suspected. And so they are the most advanced invertebrates when it comes to behavior. Uh, I've spoken on many an occasion about how smart octopuses are, how they're able to solve complex puzzles, how they're able to break out of their aquaria and uh, snack on fish in other aquaria before going back to their own. Uh, They're able to do just a host of delightful things. And, um, you know, they are definitely doing complex problem solving. But again, octopuses are weird <laughs> compared to us. You know, most of the neurons in an octopus are actually located in their arms. Uh, And their arms are actually independent from their brain. So they actually can taste and smell uh, chemicals. It's not really smelling, obviously, but they can um, detect chemicals with their arms without needing the rest of their brain. And so, again, they're very different from us. Um, They are truly kind of alien, uh, but they are also connected to us by a distant common ancestor. And so until now, they really hadn't been considered to be the kind of animal that had developed the ability to form social connections in the way that most other highly intelligent organisms do. It turns out, given this particular study, that maybe they just needed a little bit of a chemical push to become more social. And so researchers, the researchers are looking at uh, how this can give them a better understanding of the origin and development of social behavior across species. And so in 2015, Edzinger had co-discovered that octopuses share a nearly identical serotonin transporter, which also happens to be what mediates these psychological changes that are a result of taking ecstasy. We were interested in the serotonin transporter because we knew that the principal binding site that it was the principal binding site of MDMA, said Dolan. If we focused in on the parts of the protein that are really important for serotonin binding, then the similarity was over 95% between humans and octopuses. And so they worked together at the Marine Biological Laboratory, uh, which I actually visited earlier this summer. Um, At least I got to see the outside. Next year, I have to go during the week when I can actually probably get a real tour. And so what they did was they designed the experiment to test the findings by giving four octopuses ecstasy and comparing them to five more sober uh, control subjects. And so they were surprised by the results, not only because just in general, octopuses are not seen as being social animals, but they also lack a nucleus accumbens, any folded cortex, and any kind of reward circuits, which are the parts of the brain generally associated with behavioral changes from drug use. They found nonetheless that when affected by the drugs, the octopus's caresses appeared to be more exploratory than aggressive and there was more of it. Now, generally this species only social during mating with again, they are very well known for avoiding uh, their male counterparts. And so on MDMA, both males and females were more likely to be interested in each other. So once again, octopuses prove to be a fascinating and amazing creature, but they also show us really interesting things about the deeper connections between social, uh, between chemical and um, exchanges that lead to social behavior and how those develop, and so it's really interesting to talk about that. Um, and so the researchers um, were interested in the in, in the ancient origin, ancient origin of serogenetic, genetic generic. Oh, let's try this again. Sero tenergic pathways, (laughs) and especially that the shared SLC6A4 gene, which is broadly conserved across most bilaterian animals. So um, bilaterian animals are anything that has uh, bilateral symmetry. Now, interesting uh, is the fact that it's actually lacking in some uh, bilaterians, which is in the eusocial hymenopteran insects, uh, the honeybee and leafcutter ants. So some of those really highly social uh, insects actually don't have this gene. And so that's really interesting um, because they have really, really social, but also extremely hierarchical um, um sort of civilizations might one might also almost say um, and so uh, it's interesting to think about why that might be but that is actually a project for another day <laughs> uh, because obviously these researchers were looking at those octopuses. okay let's stick with neuroscience for a minute and talk about the discovery of a new kind of neuron. Now, this neuron may have avoided detection before now because it's actually not found in mice, which is unfortunate because we use mice for a lot of our modeling. But, you know, these things happen. (laughs) It has been dubbed the rose hip neuron, thanks to the fact that it is rather bushy in appearance. The neurons have Neurons in general have long branches called dendrites, which receive signals from other neurons. And in the rosehip neuron, these dendrites are very compact with lots of branch points, so it kind of looks a little bit like a rosehip. Tragiv Bakin, one of the lead authors of the paper and senior scientist at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, told Live Science. And so the neurons also have large bulbs at the end of their axons, which release neurotransmitters uh, or chemical signals to other neurons. Now, the cell has a unique gene expression, distinctive shape, and a diverse connection with other neurons. Now, the neurons was discovered by Bakken and his team in collaboration with researchers at the University of Sveged in Hungary. They actually had both found this neuron independently, but once they figured out they were both working on it, they decided to combine uh, their talents and actually work on it together. So the researchers at the Allen Institute found the neuron when examining brain tissue from two deceased middle-aged men. They found that they acted differently from other neurons. There are a number of genes that are turned on just in that cell and not in others, Bakken said. The team in Hungary found them while studying the electrical activity and shapes of neurons from brain tissue that had been removed from people during surgery but kept alive in solution. Now, the researchers note that the cells are rare, accounting for only 10% of the layer of the brain in which they were discovered, which again might account for their late discovery. And of course, this also points to the problems with obtaining human brain tissue for research. Bakken notes that they were only able to look at a single layer of the neocortex, the most recently evolved section of the brain, which is involved in sight and hearing, So it's possible that they are found in other areas of the brain as well. In the neocortex, the rosehip neurons are associated with pyramid cells, a type of excitatory neuron that accounts for two-thirds of all of the neurons in the cortex. They found that they act as inhibitory neurons to the pyramid cells. They have the potential to sort of put the brakes on the excitability of of pyramidal neurons, Bakken said. But what this means for the impact on the brain? We don't really know yet, he added. And it's important to stress the fact that these neurons are not found in mice. Mice have been a wonderful model organism for understanding how brains work in general, and can help us understand how brains, how human brains work, Bakken said. But I think finding a part of that circuit that is not seen in a mouse, that points to needing to study actual human tissue. Now, while all mammals have a neocortex, the human brain has a thousand times more cells in the human cortex compared to the mouse, he said. And of course, this might explain again why no genetic signals of rosehip neurons are even found in mice. So... This doesn't suggest overall that mice models are useless. I mean, we've definitely used them for many years with good research. It simply means that we need to continue to acknowledge that mice and humans can have different reactions, even though they share much similarity in both genetics and anatomy. And of course, we've seen that in time and time again in the medical field, where a drug works great in mice, and then when it gets to human humans even though it seemed to be so promising in mice it utterly fails because it is just there's different mechanisms and um You know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, But I think that the true upshot of this particular story is uh, that we should probably all consider donating our brains to science uh, when we die, because clearly they need more brains in order to actually find out these things. And um, I know a lot of people feel very uncomfortable about that, but I think that it would be uh, definitely something that I would do, um, because I think that it's, there's not really a better way to uh, sort of contribute to the world once you're dead than that, at least from my humble opinion. Um, So yeah. All right. And on that note, <laughs> let's take a break and do some PSAs and some uh, show promos. And I will come back and we will talk about things that don't involve uh, donating your brain to science. Hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Chip is new and old, indie pop, psych pop, post punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7 inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Chip, Tuesday nights 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 O'Clock drum and Bass Association by listening to drum and Bass with DJ Fyfe, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com, brought to you by the Ad Council. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu, but it's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exactly. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio. We're a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. This is Ruthie from Petal People with a public service announcement. If you frequent downtown Northampton or Florence and you pass by the recycling and trash bins on the street, the public ones, I'm here to let you know that cups are not recyclable. No plastic cups, no paper cups, no styrofoam cups, no clear cups, red cups, blue cups, yellow cups, no insulated cups. Because if you put cups in the recycling bin, it means either I pick them out or someone at the sorting facility picks them out in Springfield, or it contaminates the whole load too much that the whole load is considered trash. Or if you can just bring your own cup all together and not have disposable cups, that'd be even better. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your cooperation. And we are back. So, we are going to move on now and talk about Africa for a minute. Now, there is definitely this sort of idea that despite the fact that Africa is the cradle of evolution, that it is kind of always lagged behind the rest of the world in terms of civilization. Now, of course, this is silly. Uh, it is definitely not true. And there are amazing ruins that have been completely neglected and have been downplayed due to, well, colonialism, and uh, racism, and all sorts of other things like that. And so there are amazing wonders to be found in Africa, just like there are in the Middle East and in Europe, and in everywhere else on the on the earth. So what if I told you having uh, made that statement, that At the same time that Stonehenge was being built, roving herders in what is now Kenya were creating a huge monumental burial ground, which was under construction continually for 450 years. The monument, called the Lothagam North Pillar Site, features a sprawling field of rocky rings, stone columns, and burial mounds. Now, the pillars don't match those of Stonehenge in height or splendor necessarily, but they do represent a huge undertaking of a people to bury not just their elite dead, but all members of the society in a ritually important place. Now, a description of the site has been published recently in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The Lothagam North Pillar site is the earliest known monumental site in eastern Africa, built by the region's first herders. Lead study author Elizabeth Hildebrand, an associate professor at Stony Brook University in New York, said in a statement, this finding makes us reconsider how we define social complexity and the kind of motives that lead groups of people to create public architecture. Now, the site was built between was built near Lake Turkana uh, between 4,000 and 5,000 years ago, when diminished rainfall led to the shoreline retreating, and so this. Created new fertile plains for herbivores to graze. And so, moving into the area, nomadic tribes were forced to develop new technologies, strategies for living, and new forms of cultural expression. The construction of this public cemetery was one of those new forms of cultural expression. Now, the centerpiece of the site is a raised stone platform around 100 feet in diameter, which is capped with monolithic basalt and sandstone columns, which were transported from nearly a mile away. The platform contains a burial chamber that may have once held as many as 580 individuals in tightly packed graves. Now, these individuals were buried over many years. So this wasn't just uh, a couple of years of uh, interring people at this space. It was in continual use for many hundreds of years. Um, because, of course, these uh, groups were much smaller uh, than they are now. Um, you know, these were the f- really the first kind of uh, hunters and gatherers and herders uh, that were out there and so the populations would have been much smaller uh, than they even are today. Now excavations actually began at the site back in the 1960s but this is the first time that an in-depth study of the social hierarchy of the site has been tackled. Now what's interesting is uh, as I sort of alluded to before The researchers actually didn't find any evidence of hierarchy. The remains of both genders and all ages were buried together. Old men next to young women next to babies, all of their inhabitants were buried at this site. And none of the remains had associated goods that would have marked them with a higher status. Now, saying, having said that, actually, most of them were buried with colorful jewelry. Many uh, worked stone beads or jewelry from ostrich eggshells were found. And so others wore rings or bangles uh, made from hippo ivory or headdresses made from animal incisors, apparently. And in fact, One uh, body, or one skeleton, I should say, had a headpiece fashioned from 405 gerbil teeth, which apparently represents 100 individual gerbils, um, which I just thought was very interesting. Um, And so, uh, again, I've linked to the article so that you can see a picture of some of the jewelry found at the site. It's actually really beautiful. Um, I'm like... I would like some of those beads (laughs) on my own necklace. Um, It's like really, some of it's very beautiful. And you know, this is 5,000, 4,000 years ago. It's crazy. Um, And so around the platform, there is a cluster of large stone circles and cairns. Uh, So cairns are basically burial mounds created by sort of kind of slightly haphazardly stacking stones. Um, And so this creates a site that is more than 15,000 square feet. It's big, and it's monumental, and it's in East Africa. And so yeah, (laughs) the monuments may have served as a place for people to congregate, renew social ties and reinforce community identity, study co-author Annika Janssen, an archaeologist at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Germany, said in a statement, information exchange and interaction through shared ritual may have helped mobile herders navigate a rapidly changing physical landscape. Now, the data suggests that hierarchies are not essential to building of monumental architecture and therefore that our ideas of how complex societies must be ordered need to be revised. These people clearly were egalitarian, and yet they created this amazing monument. Um, That's another one of those things that people tend to believe that, oh, you know, the only way to build things like this is to have had some sort of hierarchy, where you have someone who has this vision and then they, you know, sit around while the lower classes actually build it for them. But here there was clearly a sense of community and that this was a shared enterprise between all members of the society. Now, again, of course, this doesn't mean that we should all live in, you know, harmony and uh, go out and become um, hunter gatherers or, you know, uh, pastoralists. But you know, it just again, points to the fact that we tend to have this idea that humans just have this one particular kind of nature, because that's what we've been exposed to all our lives. And so, um, you know, that's not exactly what needs to happen. So there are ways in which humans actually can interact with one another in an egalitarian way that doesn't require hierarchies. Um, yes. So, you know, capitalism bad. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I should probably rename this show Evidence-Based Radio and... Uh, Marxist uh, (laughs) apologetics hour. But um, anyways, (laughs) Um, yeah, so let's let's move on with more science. Okay, so a new study uh, has suggested that a 558 million year old fossil might just be the oldest confirmed animal fossil. Now, this science sounds very cool. But I do want to talk about how This is a very, very new finding, and there are definitely some people who are not convinced. So just keep that in mind as we talk about it. So paleontologists believe that organisms that could be considered under the auspices of animalia did definitely develop during the period called the Ediacaran, which would have been between 571 and 541 million years ago. And this is actually the period directly before the Cambrian period, which people are much more familiar with, uh, the Cambrian explosion, where you get all of these, like, crazy weird things that just pop up seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, people used to believe, but now as we found more fossils, and we've gotten better at figuring out what is a fossil, you know, we can definitely show that the Cambrian Explosion, while it there was a large divergence of forms during that period, they didn't come out of nothing, that there were earlier forms that show a a pretty clear lineage of um, continuing to branch out until you get to uh, the Cambrian period. And so most people don't consider it to have been really an explosion anymore. And so we do think that, you know, this was the period right before the Cambrian where what can be considered animals were born um, or were evolved. And so, um, you know, there are different... Kingdoms, there's sort of the animal kingdom, there is the uh, protist kingdom, and then there is the uh, um, plant kingdom. And so there are definitely different uh, kinds of organisms. And so sometimes in this early period, they're a little mixed. And so again, fossils from this era are very weird. And so much of evolution's first forays into multicellular life were pretty bizarre and they blur the line between the major kingdoms. And so some things that we used to think were plants, we probably think are animals now and vice versa. And some of them may have been giant funguses or protozoa. Who knows? (laughs) Some actually might represent lineages that actually didn't survive and don't have any living ancestors. So it's pretty exciting when someone announces that they've definitively figured out what a fossil from this era is. Now, again, there is still some doubt. But the fossil in question is this weird... uh, Fossil, it is referred to as uh, Dickinsonia, and so it's again really weird. And so, it is this oval shaped organism that featured rib like segments, it could actually be up to four feet long, and it just basically looks like a giant leaf. (laughs) Like, the fossil basically just looks like a giant leaf, um, maybe with some pretty uh, close veining. And so, what's almost certainly true about it is that if it does turn out to be the first example that we can pin down as being an animal, it won't be the earliest. Uh, so, it will just be the earliest that we'll be able to identify because we definitely think that this has, um, you know, that the things had been already evolving towards this, and of course, it's also hard to define exactly when something becomes an animal. But the researchers make a pretty uh, good argument for their belief that this is a animal, and so. They claim that they were able to discern the biomarkers that suggest Dickinsonia would have had cholesterol. And so the fossil in question is a 558 million year old specimen from near the White Sea in Northwest Russia. Researchers led by Ilya Bobrovsky from the Australian National University believe they found traces of cholesterol, which is a fat produced only by animals. The fossil fat molecules that we've found prove that animals were large and abundant 558 million years ago, millions of years earlier than previously thought. Walken Brocks, a co-author of the new study and an associate professor at ANU, said in a statement, Scientists have been fighting for more than 75 years over what Dickinsonia and other bizar- bizarre fossils of the Ediacaran biota were giant single celled amoeba, lichen failed experiments of evolution, or the earliest animals on Earth. The fossil fat now confirms Dickinsonia as the oldest known animal fossil, solving a decades-old mystery that has been the holy grail of paleontology. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. (laughs) And so the researchers identified hydrocarbon biomarkers using gas chromatography uh, mass spectrometry. They found that 93% of the extracted organic materials were cholesterol molecules, compared to 11% of the surrounding sediments. They also failed to find biomarkers that would indicate the remains were fungal or other alternative forms of life. But as I said, not everyone is convinced. I find the study completely unconvincing, Jonathan B. Antcliffe, a senior researcher at Lausanne University in Switzerland told Gizmodo. There is a long history of very strong claims being made because of evidence from biomarkers that in the end do not really amount to very much. There is no one arguing for the alternative position that Dickinsonia is bacterial. No one thinks that Dickinsonia is bacterial. No one. So we already know it is a eukaryote of some type. There is there are very many different eukaryotes and the authors cherry picked a few examples and quickly rejected them before moving immediately to an animal conclusion. He also suggested that they did not give enough information to suggest that they had truly uh, eliminated the idea that there might be some form of contamination. Now, it's not to say that he thinks that they're completely wrong and that's the end of it. He suggests that they just need to do more research, that what they've done so far is not compelling enough to make the statements that they've made. So it might be that once it's gone through a uh, few rounds of peer review and people talking about it that, you know, it will become uh, something that people overwhelmingly do believe in. And maybe it won't. Uh, You know, there have been a lot of things that we have come across where it seems really promising, and then it doesn't pan out. Um, It turns out to have been contamination, or it turns out that there was just any number of things that went wrong, that turned out to make it Not what it seemed to be. And so, of course, scientists are cautious. Uh, But of course, scientists are also humans. So when you have a really cool result, you want to tell everybody. You don't want to be like, well, maybe, possibly, kind of. You want to be like, this is the first animal that we can point to and say yes. Um, So we'll see what happens. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah. All right. So let us finish up tonight with a story about children and chimpanzees. So a new study suggests that toddlers between the ages of 12 and 24 months share up to 90% of their gestures with juvenile and adult chimps. Now, these gestures include hugging, jumping, stomping, and throwing objects, (laughs) things that we all know that toddlers love to do, um, but apparently also chimps love to do. And so basically what this points to is that such behaviors are innate and a product of evolutionary history that stretches back to a common ancestor's. Since chimpanzees and humans shared a common ancestor around five to six million years ago, we wanted to know whether our evolutionary history of communication is also reflected in human development, Verena Kerskin, a researcher at the University of Göttingen and the first author of the study said in a University of St. Andrews statement. Now, for the study, the researchers watched toddlers in their natural, quote-unquote, habitats, uh, such as at home or daycare, and with peers, relatives, and caregivers present. So, 13 children in total were observed, six in Germany, and seven in Uganda. Now, they tried to do this in order to reduce bias from the impact of culture and native language on early gestures. They wrote... Now, the chimpanzees that they looked at ranged in age from 1 to 51 years old, and they were observed in their natural habitat at the Budongo Forest in Uganda. Now, of course, they don't have any vocal language. Um, I mean, they have sort of screeches and screams, but it's not talking like we have, but they use about 80 different gestures. And in fact... Uh, scientists have recently published the Great Ape Dictionary, a uh, compendium of these gestures in order to help decipher their meaning. Wild chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, and orangutans all use gestures to communicate their day to day requests, but until now, they were always one ape missing from the picture us, explains Catherine Hobader, a senior author of the paper and a scientist at the U- at the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St. Andrews, we used exactly the same approach to study young chimpanzees and children, which makes sense. Children are just tiny apes. And so in all, the toddlers made 52 distinct gestures, of which 46 or 89% were also documented among the chimpanzees and so they gestured both singly and by stringing them into a sequence. We thought we might find a few of these gestures, reaching out your palm to ask for something or sticking your hand up in the air, but we were amazed to see so many of the ape quote unquote gestures used by the children, said Hobader. And so that is really interesting. And so, again, it's this idea that even though we consider ourselves to be, you know, very different, uh, we have actually re- retained some shared behavioral aspects, and those are really expressed well in childhood. And so, of course, once we develop speech, then they tend to peter out because we then change the way in which we interact with people and the way that we use gestures. Uh, But until then, we're just little apes. All right. That is all the time I have for tonight. Uh, Please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next And as always, have a great week. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.